Hey everybody, this is Chris and I am staring at the lovely suntan face of Patrick Kahn. And the sun is shining, the snow is gone and it's time for another episode of Dark and Devious. Hey everyone, Patrick here and welcome back to Dark and Devious. We are glad to have you back in our life. We've missed you. It's been so long. <laughs> it's almost like it's been exactly a week. A week to the day. That's how it feels anyways. <laughs> oh my gosh. I and it's almost hard doing this recording inside this morning because it is just the the sun is out. And we've gone through our second melting of snow. Yes. It feels good. It feels so good. It, isn't it actually officially spring now? It is. Yesterday was the first day of spring. Yay. Oh, my gosh. I actually ate my lunch outside yesterday, but it was really windy. So I, I was a little cold still. <laughs> I was like, damn it. I've been waiting all these months to eat outside. I'm going to eat my salad outside even if it's blowing everywhere <laughs> it was super windy yesterday we it, we had planned to do a picnic so we went and we got some takeout from uh, a poke bowl place and we were going to go have a picnic but then it was just so incredibly windy that we just drove to the spot and then sat in our car with the sunroof open because <laughs> we like we didn't want like a, like, to be in the wind while we're trying to eat. And then B, like, leagues were blowing around, dirt was blowing around. You're like, let's keep that out of our food. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, wait for maybe a less windy day. I guess we were both really eager for uh, an outdoor dining experience. And we are so, so close. So we, close. We are. I mean, I got quite a bit of it while I was on vacation. But... As far as being in Minnesota goes, maybe a, a couple more weeks and we'll be out there. I feel like six months from now, you'll still be like, well, when I was in Hawaii, I'll be like, <laughs> Patrick, I get it. You went to Hawaii. <laughs> You're still tan from it. <laughs> yes. And it shall never go away. I know it will stay forever. You've been you've been baked in. Mm hmm. I do go outside a lot, though. This morning before we um, started this recording, I went on like an hour and almost an hour and a half long walk um, just because it's it's so nice to finally be out of winter. It feels great. Right. I know. I'm looking forward to getting outside moving a lot more. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, we have some fun little stories to share or at least I've got a like a funny little story to share that's connected to one of our past episodes sure I I really want to hear this I you teased me with it yes. earlier but I want to hear exactly what it is yes yeah, so uh to remind everybody our second episode the attempted assassination of Harry Truman uh was very centered around uh, Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican independence movement um, and nationalism in on the island. And uh, so when I was at the bookstore on Friday, I was doing some receiving, I was receiving boxes. And um, when there's a customer order in there, the printer automatically prints out the like the hold slip for it so it has the customer's information and the book and I was sorting all those out and I, and I saw one it was like there's a book called Against All Puerto Ricans that was all about the um like the uprisings the uprisings and stuff that happened on the island and I'm like oh my gosh this is so cool like I wish I had had this for my research I didn't even know this book existed and 
I looked at the customer's name and the their last name was Koyazo, which was one of the two assassins last names Oscar no way. I'm like oh my gosh I have to find out if this guy is related to to one of the assassins like that'd be so crazy and I and of course like his phone number is on there and we had to call him to let him know that his book was in so I'm like well I might as well do it and so I called, I'm like, please pick up, please pick up, please pick up. I'm really curious about this. And dang it, I got the message machine. So I, I left the normal message about like, hey, we got your book. Uh, you could pick it up, it's on hold until this date. But then at the end of the message, I was like, I'm also really curious if you're related to Oscar Coyazo. So if you are, I would really like to know and I wrote a note on the hold slip, be like, ask if this guy is related to Oscar Coyazo. So I'm hoping that whoever rings this guy up when he comes in will ask and that they'll let the like put a note in my box or something. That's, I, that's so cool. Like, what are the <laughs> odds? Well, there's one other weird story like that I've had where someone was picking up an order and their last name was Cermak like C-E-R-M-A-C-K, I think. And I was like, oh, like the old mayor of Chicago, right? And, and like this weird, obscure historical fact that nobody else would really know. <laughs> and uh, it was like, a, you know, someone who was kind of like a middle-aged mom age. And, and she was like, oh, actually, yes. It's my husband. Like I took my husband's last name and his grandfather was Anton Cermak, the mayor of Chicago, who was assassinated. And I'm like, whoa, that is so cool. I can't believe I actually found that weird little true crime connection just because I recognized the last name and the odds were so slim that they would actually be related. And also another assassination tie yeah. there as well. Yes. Maybe. Maybe more booksellers should be prying into who's buying <laughs> Ask, these books. Asking the la about the last name similarities. Right. Uh, right. And uh, Anton Cermak was actually uh, was assassinated. He was down in Florida with uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And they think that Franklin Roosevelt might have been the was supposedly the target of the assassin but they hit the mayor of chicago instead mm. other people think that maybe it was actually on purpose because i you know chicago in the 30s and and organized crime and stuff you know there was bound to be some weird stuff there but yeah that i mean chicago was a huge uh, uh epicenter for mobsters yeah um, which and after they, moving to the Twin Cities in Minnesota, I learned that St. Paul was like a huge hideout. And oh yeah. a lot of their families lived up here to stay safe. And there's all these caves along the Mississippi River that they would hide all their loot and all their weapons in. Yeah, it's it's kind of a cool little, like you, you never think of, you know, the Twin Cities as being... Uh, like a hub for organized crime. But back in the day, it was, it was a little, uh, a little wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of the stories that I've heard about uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul's past has just been like, really? That happened here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. I hope you get back or get word back from uh, the buyer and the seller. Yeah. <laughs> cool, yeah, that'll cool. Be really cool. okay i was just gonna say um something else that's really cool that's been happening is our listeners have been really cool i saw that we all the ratings that we've been getting have all been five stars and i've read some really really very kind and generous reviews so 
to those of you out there that are rating and reviewing, thank you so much. Um, yes, thank you. And just a reminder to everyone else, please do rate and review us because the more rates and the more reviews that we get, um, the higher up on the charts we appear um, as far as like gaining attention in the podcast world, which means uh, people outside of our listeners will see it and possibly start listening. So please do rate and review on whatever streaming platform you are listening on. Yes, we appreciate it so much. And we also, I was just informed recently that we have our first um, financial subscriber, which is in, insanely generous, especially because we've never asked for financial contributions or anything, although they're always welcome. Yes, always, always, always send us money, all the money. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever you can afford. Yes, you know? yes. It's like uh, it's like those NPR drive like drives the member drives for like even if it's just five dollars a month, every little bit counts, you know. Uh, but thank you to Amanda Conway. So thank you so much for believing in us and being our first subscriber. Um, you know, for tossing us a few a little coin every month. That is very very sweet of you and. From the bottom of our hearts, we thank you. Yes, thank Maybe, you, Amanda. You're a doll. As soon as we get as soon as we get big enough to have merch, we're gonna like we're gonna have to send her something, something mm -hmm. special. I think all of our um, financial providers, you know, once we have merch, we should we should you know give them a little bit. Yeah, we'll thanks, figure out. Something. Thanks for the support. Yeah. So see, that's what's great about being in on the ground floor on on stuff like this is that when when they get big, then they remember the little people who were there from the beginning. And maybe you can get some some cool stuff. We'll we'll see what the future brings. Yes, time will tell. Okay. Um any other news or updates that we have for the show or personally, Chris? Um, no, I don't think I can't think of anything right off. I know we want to remind people of our, our, our social acts as we, as we were talking <laughs> about before we started our social media accounts. Yes, uh, we are on Facebook and Instagram, uh, both as dark and devious podcast. That's right. And then we also just have our Gmail account. Uh, which again, any suggestions or questions um, or just general messages that you like to share with your hosts. Mm -hmm. That is darkanddevious at gmail.com. Or is it dark and devious podcast? Yes, darkanddeviouspodcast at gmail.com. There's, like, there's some 13-year-old emo girl who has the original <laughs> like just dark and devious i'm sure oh for sure and it's probably not even she probably once was 13 years old but now she's like a 35 year old soccer mom uh who just <laughs> forgot that that email ever existed she doesn't even know the, the password anymore <laughs> right i've tried to look up like my old myspace accounts um which i can't I find anymore well, you know, it's funny. Do you remember if, if this was a few years ago that they had some weird, something weird happened and they lost like all of their data from like a, a certain chunk of time. Oh. So it all got erased. Oh, well, darn it. I want to know who my top eight from 2007 were. <laughs> right? Exactly. <Yeah. laughs> like who were the last people? Right. I did hear that MySpace is kind of like a thing now for musicians. Yeah, it kind of got transformed into yeah. like a music, like kind of like a, a, a Facebook of musicians kind of. Right, it's, it's how musicians can put out their content uh, for free and find like producers or collaborators. Um, yeah, 
And that's cool. I mean, good for you, MySpace. I mean, I'm, it was a short-lived social media moment, but they couldn't couldn't hang in there. No, and I'm sad they didn't. It was kind of fun. It was fun. Life was simpler. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually still friends with uh, with somebody that I that I. Uh, got acquainted with through MySpace. Oh, cool. We've never met in person because we live like a thousand miles apart. <laughs> but wait, like I still follow him on, I still follow him on Facebook. He's an amazing performer. He does drag. And okay. It's always fun to see what he's up to. So, but we're, we're still friends today because of MySpace. So that's Thanks, cool. Mice. I feel like we're giving MySpace a lot of free advertising today. Should MySpace be our next sponsor? That would be that'd be super cool. I I don't know. They wouldn't have anything to give us really, but <laughs> and, you, you know, like if you get Casper, like Casper mattresses as a sponsor, they'll send you a free mattress or something like that. Yeah, or HelloFresh will give us a month of free food. Yeah. <laughs> those are very podcasty type they really are yeah well are we ready to dig into today's case anything else we want to touch on not that i can think of i am very excited to share this story with you i am very excited to hear this story from you well hang tight you'll hear from it after this All right. Welcome back, everyone. So today's story is a story that I've I've known about for a couple of years, and um, it was very shocking the first time I heard it. And I learned a lot more as I was doing research. However, I do need to get on a serious note here for a second, because this story focuses on an Asian Canadian family. And for those of you that are listening in the present time, you are most likely aware that there was a hate crime that took place in uh, the Atlanta, Georgia area on Asian Americans, um, specifically Asian women. And I just want to let it be known that this story today is in no way to cause any further discrimination or hate against the Asian communities. Um, I I want to give love and support to the Asian community, the Asian American, Asian uh, European community, Asians everywhere, because I know it's a problem all, all around the globe. And this just happened to very poorly coincide uh, this this terrible tragedy in Georgia with the fact that I was writing about an Asian Canadian family. Um, it was just, I had done the research, I'd done the writing, and then that terrible shooting massacre occurred. And I just want it to be known that in no way, shape, or form do we support that. And we, in fact, here at Dark and Devious, support the opposite. We we love our Asian neighbors. We only wish for things to get better. You know, it's it's wild to think that uh, this probably isn't the first time that people have had to make a disclaimer like that, where I've, I think I've definitely heard on other true crime podcasts where they were talking about like a mass shooting and it just happened to line up with on another, like the episode was coming out right after another mass shooting had happened. And it's it's one of those unfortunate things that you can't control what is what else is happening in the world. And there's always going to be more true crime stuff happening. And, you know, I guess the best that we can do is to just continue to tell our stories, but do exactly what what we just did here is like with the disclaimer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and pay respect to uh, the people in our stories and the people 
who are going through it in the now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, someone might be listening to this episode two years from now, and maybe they will still remember this event that happened, or maybe they won't even know that it happened because sadly we have far too many like mass casualty events in in the United States that's mm-hmm. it's something that happens way too often and sometimes doesn't even make the headlines right there's there's lots of tragedies that happen that we don't hear about it maybe gets local news coverage but yeah not national so again so- Yes, we love our Asian friends and neighbors. Yes, we sure do. And please, I hope you don't take offense from this episode. Um, It just happens to be the people in it were an Asian family. Right, and it's like, it doesn't matter what race someone is. There's always going to be good people and bad people of every race. Exactly. That's extremely true. Mm -hmm. All right, let's dig in. Well, with that, are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. Well, today I'm going to be telling you the story of um, the perfect daughter, Jennifer Pan. Oh, all right. I think you just named the episode right there. The perfect daughter. Yep. Okay. So throughout our lives, most of us will fall in love with at least a few people. Often, we're hardwired to love and be loved, seeking affection from the people around us. Love can inspire us to be better people than we innately are. Jennifer Pan was a woman who was deeply in love and who was lucky enough to meet the love of her life while still in high school. Jennifer Pan's mother, Bik Ha Pan, and father, Hue Han Pan, were immigrants from Vietnam to Canada. Han was born and educated in Vietnam, moving back, moving to Canada in 1979 as a political refugee. Background about Bic is a little unclear, but she too immigrated as a refugee. The couple were married in Toronto and lived in Scarborough. They had two children, Jennifer, born in 1986, and Felix, born in 1989, which I just think Felix is the cutest name. That's a, it's also a great pet name, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, my little Felix. Oh, I just want to cuddle with my little Felix. Yeah. <laughs> also, I, lo- I, I love that, uh, that they chose very Western names. Like, I'm sure this was probably like a, like a true immigrant story of, of trying to, um, What's the word I'm looking for when you're trying to blend in? Assimilate. Assimilate, yes. They're trying to embrace their new culture. They named their kids Jennifer and Felix. Like that's yeah. pretty Western names. Yeah, they and you'll see that they wanted uh so Han and Bic wanted their children's lives to be better than what they had. So it's also possible they gave them Western names to, you know, help help them in the western world so that way when on document someone reads jennifer they just assume that she's a westerner also i'm pretty sure every like every 10th girl was named jennifer in that time period right um so the pans found work at magna international an auto parts manufacturer in aurora ontario Han worked as a tool and die maker while Bic assembled car parts. The couple persistently worked hard for their money to ensure that their children had the upbringing and opportunities they themselves had missed out on. Han and Bic were thrifty and by 2004 were financially stable enough to purchase a moderately sized home with a two-car garage in Markham, a city in the greater Toronto area with a large Asian population. I'm failing to see the downside to this so far. I mean, you this seems like a pretty great story actually. It is. It's a beautiful story and it only gets more beautiful, Chris. <laughs> it does. Just wait. It gets beautifuler and then it gets real ugly. Okay. All right. <laughs> 
So at first, it looked like their daughter, Jennifer, could have become a powerhouse. Jennifer's parents set many goals for their children and had extremely high expectations of them. Jennifer was made to take piano lessons at the age of four, as well as figure skating classes, where she trained most days during the week. She had hopes of becoming an Olympic figure skating champion, but unfortunately, that dream shattered when she tore a ligament in her knee. Oh, that's such a bummer. Mm-hmm. I also am imagining her trying to practice both things at once. Like somehow there's like a like a small piano on on skates or something, and she has to like push the piano while she's playing on it on the uh-huh. ice. Uh huh. That would be that that it could be a career in itself. There, she could do both at the same. It time. really could be. I'd pay to see it. Right. So Jennifer attended Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School where she played the flute in the school band. According to her high school friend, Karen K. Ho, Jennifer's father, was seen as a classic, quote, tiger dad, and Bick was his reluctant accomplice. (laughs) The pans picked Jennifer up when classes ended each day and monitored her extracurricular activities very closely. They never allowed her to date boys while in high school, or attend high school dances out of the fear that these activities would distract her from her academics. Following high school, Jennifer became enrolled in the pharmacology program at the University of Toronto, one of the most prestigious universities in Canada. In addition, she was volunteering for Toronto Sick Kids Hospital and consistently bringing home incredible grades. While most university students stumble in their first year, Jennifer maintained a high grade point average and looked like she was going to exceed every dream and hope her parents ever had for her. I imagine her doing all of her skills for those sick children in the hospital. Like she's playing the flute and the piano for them. And she's, I don't know. I mean, she could be like rollerblading through the halls of the hospital. And (laughs) I just, I, she seems like a real, Wonder Woman. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she would be a, a like a beacon of hope for these kids, I feel. Yeah. Um, well, from the outside looking in, people would see a focused and entrepreneurial young woman. She was incredibly close with her family, had a boyfriend who loved her, and somehow managed to juggle what seemed like an impossible workload. Jennifer Pan was going places, and nothing was going to stop her. Nothing except that this was all a lie. She had never gone to university. She wasn't volunteering at a sick kid's hospital. And in fact, she had never even finished high school. What? Oh my gosh, you had me going there. I was so ready to believe everything there. Right? I told you it got more beautiful, but then it (laughs) goes down oh lord okay i'm here i was so excited for this this beautiful story like maybe this wasn't gonna end horribly this time but it was all a lie gotcha gotcha (laughs) just kidding (laughs) her friend went along with this and even allowed jennifer to receive and make phone calls from the house when in all reality, she was staying with her boyfriend, Daniel Chi Kwong Wong, whom she had met in high school. Despite her parents' high expectations and that Jennifer had received good grades in lower school, throughout high school, her grades were somewhat average in the 70s range, except for music, which she always excelled at. Multiple times, she forged report cards using false templates to show her parents that she had received straight A's when she had not. When Jennifer failed calculus class in grade 12, Ryerson University rescinded her early admission. As she could not bear to be perceived as a failure, she began to lie to those she knew, including her parents, and began pretending that she was attending university. Oh my gosh. I just imagine her with, uh, like, you know, in, 
I think of like the Simpsons where like you there'd be all the F's on the report card and he and Bart would be like changing them like just enough so that they would look like bees or something like that. I just imagine her with like the straight edge and be like, okay, that is becoming an A. Right. Yeah, and the um, lengths that she goes to, you'll see soon. And and like any story that is a web of lies, I know it's going to all come crashing down at some point because mm-hmm. when you <laughs> lies are not a good strong structure to build anything on. Exactly. Lies never make friends. <laughs> So instead of attending university, Jennifer spent her day sitting in cafes, teaching piano, and she also got a part-time job at a Boston pizza. In order to maintain the trade, Jennifer told her parents she had won scholarships, creating false scholarship documents, and later claiming that she had accepted an offer into the pharmacology program at the University of Toronto. Boy, that is a really big lie to to throw out there. I mean, because mm-hmm. eventually someone's going to be like, oh, can you, you know, because what a, a pharmacologist, would you be able to prescribe medication, do you think? Yeah. Be like, oh, can you prescribe something? Be like, yeah, totally. And then it's like, it's like, great. Now I got to forge a prescription pad and it's good. It just seems like it's a lot of extra effort. It's a lot more work to lie than it is just to tell the truth. And with all of the effort that she's putting into all of the the lies, you could have you studied done, and I gotten your or, high school diploma. Yeah, or or you know put those skills to use doing something else. I don't know. Yeah. So she went to the extent of purchasing secondhand textbooks and watching videos related to pharmacology in order to create notebooks full of purported class notes that she could show her parents. I imagine she's just watching a lot of Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) To her parents, Jennifer was studying up to 18 hours a day in order to excel in the pharmacology field, when in all reality, it was a facade shrouded in a web of lies. Jennifer also requested permission from her parents to stay near the campus with a friend throughout the week so she could focus more on her studies rather than spending time commuting. Initially, it seemed like Daniel and Jennifer were good for each other. The two met in 11th grade, and although Jennifer had another boyfriend at the time, she couldn't help but be drawn to the affection that Daniel gave her. He helped her through a panic attack once, calming her fears while they were on a trip together. And soon enough, they were inseparable. School became far less important for Jennifer. She was obsessed with Daniel and the way that he made her feel. She started to structure her life around him. She loved talking to him, texting him, and even just listening to him breathe while he slept. That last part's a little creepy, but okay. (laughs) Jennifer shaped her entire life around Daniel, including getting a job at that Boston pizza where he also worked. It's like, oh, I just want to spend every waking minute with you. Like, uh huh. That that's a little, maybe a little unhealthy. A little, but... a little bit too much time together. <laughs> and then again, I've got I've got coworkers who are couples and. They work together all the time, but usually they like, they will at least have some days of the week where they work opposite so that they could have their alone time. Sure. I feel sure. like that's healthy. <laughs> it is. Yeah. According to an article in Toronto Life, Monday through Wednesday, she stayed with Daniel and his family at their home in Ajax. Eventually, though, just like you mentioned, Chris, her web of lies was destined to unravel. While pretending to complete her degree at the University of Toronto, Jennifer had told her parents that she started working as a volunteer at the Hospital for Sick Children. However, 
Han and Beck soon became suspicious when they realized she did not have a hospital ID badge or uniform. One day, Bick followed her daughter to work and quickly discovered her deception. Okay, that's really weird that he, that he followed her, his own daughter. Uh, mom followed Oh, daughter. mom did. Okay, that mom followed her own daughter. Well, I mean, they think that she's lying to them about working somewhere. She's leaving to work in a hospital without scrubs on. I can kind of see it. I, I it's, it, it's, it's just like paranoia and deception on both sides of the family <laughs> yeah and you know from the way that they raised their children they were always like very much in control of their children's lives so i'm Maybe not surprised that they would do this in a state of shock han wanted to throw jennifer out of the house but her mother bick persuaded him to allow her to stay as she had not completed high school due to failing calculus her parents persuaded her to begin working on finishing her high school degree. Once that was finished, she was encouraged by her parents to apply to any university. They didn't care if she went to like the top rated school anymore. They just wanted an honest daughter going to a university. I imagine it's like even the school for like, I imagine like uh, for like a franchise be like go to mcdonald's training academy just do something <laughs> yeah just something honest um she was forbidden to contact daniel wong or to go anywhere except for her piano teaching job which she was driven to and her parents would wait outside until her lessons were finished whoa that is some major control yeah nevertheless though she and daniel spoke secretly by the time that Jennifer was 24, Daniel had grown tired of trying to pursue a relationship with her. As Jennifer was so daunted and restricted by her parents that she lived at home and only met him in secret, Daniel began to date another young woman named Katrina, whom he soon fell in love with. Jennifer, learning of Katrina, quickly concocted a story to get him back into her life. She told Daniel that a man had entered her house showing what appeared to be a police badge. She says then several men had rushed in and gang raped her. After this, she insisted that a bullet was mailed to her, telling Daniel that it was sent from his new girlfriend Katrina and that Katrina had set the whole attack up. Wow, I feel like that's something, like she maybe fell asleep watching uh like some sort of thriller, like action thriller movie. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like that's the kind of thing that only happens in a movie. Yeah, I feel like she um, was watching too much Lifetime. Ooh, that could be too. Shortly after this story came out, all three, Katrina, Daniel, and Jennifer, started receiving violent text messages. Jennifer claimed that, there was that all these were being sent from Katrina and that she was threatening Jennifer's life. Jennifer also wrote long text messages to Daniel where her disdain for Katrina was obvious. One goes as followed. So this is Jennifer's writing to Daniel. Okay. Forward this to Katrina. Congratulations to you and your friends for winning and putting me through not only emotional pain, but physical. They raped me and beat me, and yet you win the only person that meant anything to me. Please just tell these people to leave me alone so that I may rest in peace and so that I, I may go easy. I have suffered enough and I don't want to suffer during my last days. Good luck and take care of Daniel for him, for me. He is everything to me, but sadly, I was never enough for him to love. Wait, so she sent that to Daniel? She sent that to Daniel, but the very first line was forward this to Katrina. Right. Oh my gosh. It, it's like, of course he's going to read the whole message. Mm -hmm. it, it's just a very uh, desperate attempt uh, at attention. But of course, at the time, you probably take it seriously. Right, of course. And like these kids are young. So, well, I guess early 20s. Yeah, 20s, yeah. Yeah. Are we, are we old enough to consider that young? 
I mean, that's 10 years younger than me. So I'm 33. So no, I'm not. I'm 32. I'm not that old. <laughs> I know. I'm only, I'm only 31. Yes, we're fine. We're, <laughs> we're fine. <laughs> so for his part, Daniel was reluctant to leave Jennifer alone. Whether through her manipulations or his own weakness, he continued conversations with both women. By 2010, Jennifer and Daniel were back in constant contact. And according to, to the police, this is when they came up with a plan to hire a professional hitman for $10,000 to kill her parents, calculating that she would then inherit $500,000 and that they could finally be together without anyone trying to pull them apart. That escalated quickly. It it does. Um, I mean, Daniel, I didn't get too much into his backstory, but he's kind of a shady individual. He runs he runs with some dark and devious folks. Ooh, okay. um, so I'm not surprised at that. Um, but it was Jennifer who came up with the plan herself. And she knew I think, that he would be on board. Yes. Yeah. So Daniel connected Jennifer with a man, Lenford Roy Crawford, who he called homeboy. Daniel had met Lenford through his various drug dealing endeavors. Lenford contacted another man named Eric Sean Cardi, who in turn contacted a third man, David Milvaganam. These three men, along with Jennifer, would be in constant contact about the hit put upon her parents and executing a plan of action. The date of November 8th, 2010 was the decided upon day that their plan would play out. Jennifer picked this particular day because she knew that Felix would be out. It would just be her and her parents at home for the evening. On the evening of the 8th, and as Jennifer headed to bed, she swung by the front door and unlocked it, leaving the hitman an open entrance. Oh, gosh, that's just, yeah. that's really low. Uh-huh. She then spoke to the, on the phone to David Milligavan and gave him the go. Shortly afterwards, Milligan, Lenford, Roy Crawford, and Eric Sean Carter entered the home through the unlocked front door, all carrying armed guns. The three men made their way into the house. They attacked and subdued Bick first, and then drug Han out of his bed. Both Han and Bick were led to the basement. Jennifer handed over money when she was asked to do, and then according to her, she was tied to the banisters upstairs with shoelaces. The three hitmen ordered Han and Bick to get on their knees and face the basement wall. They draped a towel over their heads as they pleaded for their lives. The next thing Jennifer knew was that she was hearing gunshots coming from the basement. Her mother Bick was shot in the head and killed instantly, but not before her final cry of, please do whatever you want, but leave our daughter alone. Oh my gosh, it's so heartbreaking that like, they don't even know that their daughter set this up and mm -hmm. all they care about is her safety. Right, exactly. Uh. Han was then shot multiple times in the torso and face. In the meantime, Jennifer says that she was able to untie her hands and called for emergency services. On the recording, you can hear Jennifer saying that she doesn't know what is happening, but she heard popping sounds coming from the basement and that the men had taken her parents down there. As she is online with the operator, the next thing you hear is a guttural scream. Her father had survived. Oh my gosh. Jennifer claimed to be just as terrorized as her father and could be heard to continuously plead for help in the frantic 911 call. She even begs the operator for her father to be saved that emergency services arrive as soon as possible. The EMTs did arrive in time to save Han's life. He was treated at Markham Stufelville Hospital before being moved to a trauma unit at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. So that 911 call, I 
I listened to. And either she is an incredible actress or in the moment she became genuinely terrified because listening to it is like horrifying. And then when you hear Han screaming in the background and then her response, like she's freaking out, she's crying. And I, I, I have two thoughts on that. Like, is she freaking out crying because her dad survived and it didn't go her way? Or are her pleas with the operator like genuine? Like, like she realized what she's done and now she's saying like, get here so my dad can live. It's interesting because if she had just applied herself differently, she would have been a phenomenal actress. Yes, she sure would have because she had her whole family fooled and this emergency uh, dispatcher as well. Wow, that is just shocking. And yeah, it really makes you wonder, is her reaction genuine in the moment or is she does she just know that she has to sell it i don't know it, it, it's funny that you bring that up because it makes me think of like the uh jean benet ramsey 911 call where her mother is calling and she's she sounds like kind of like flustered but there's kind of, it's you know there's all this kind of is it real concern or is she just overselling it so you get some comparisons there yeah we we probably will cover John Panay at some point it's that's a fascinating case I would it is I'd be down for that the evening after the murder Jennifer underwent her first of three interviews with the police there were immediate inconsistencies and holes in her stories throughout the interviews and On her third interview, November 22nd, 2010, she was arrested. During the interview, Jennifer admitted that she had hired the killers, but claimed that she hired them to kill her and not her parents because she was so depressed and under her parents' control. She claims that she wanted to end her life, but couldn't bring herself to do it to herself. So she hired the hitman to take her out to put her out of her misery. That is just the most bonkers. <laughs> it would like, oh, you know what? They just misunderstood me. It was, it just was, it just got bungled up. Right. I told them to kill me, but instead that I'm the only one that survived and they killed everyone else. Right. Confusion, I guess. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You know, it, I should have gotten it notarized and, and, you know, my people talked to their people and it just got lost in translation. Um, so this next tidbit I found interesting um, to get her to confess to hiring the hitman, uh, the interrogating police officer, William Goats, falsely told Jennifer that he had computer software that could analyze untruths and statements and that there were satellites that used infrared technology to analyze movements in buildings. So these are false statements, but this is what I found interesting. In Canada, police are legally allowed to lie to those they are interrogating in regard to the evidence in the trial, as well as in regard to the strategies they are using. That's really interesting. Because mm-hmm. I don't... I feel that- like in the in, in the states, it's very looked down upon to ever lie in the interrogation room. I mean, I've seen enough episodes of Law and Order SVU to know that that's frowned upon. Because there have been times where, like, they'll be like, "Yeah, your partner flipped and told us everything," and then he's like, "No, that's not true," and it's like, "Yeah, it is," and then fine, I'll tell you everything, you know, that kind of strategy when really they didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's an interesting strategy where they could be like, well, the other person's talking and they're pinning it all on you. So you've got to tell your side of the story or else you're going down for it. Right. Or, or this officer that said, Hey, we have technology that can show the movement that took place inside of your house that night. Are you sure you're telling the truth? 
that's uh, yeah that's a little more far-fetched <laughs> right i'm surprised she fell for that but i don't know um so following jennifer's confession of hiring the hitman her accomplices were all sought out and apprehended as well however it took a few months Milvaganam was arrested at the Jane Finch Mall in North York, Toronto on April 14th, 2011. He was just hanging out at the mall? Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> hey, killers got a shop too. That's true. I mean, and they usually have those soft pretzels there that you can yeah. only get at the mall. Yeah, which I've never had one. Are you kidding me? And I, I like can't now because now i'm gluten intolerant so i missed that bandwagon dang that's that's a bummer i'm sorry sorry (laughs) you missed that that used to be one of the things that i like when we'd go to the mall of america as kids like it was always such a special trip right Uh, i i had to have my soft pretzel Mm. i should have done it So Cardi was arrested in Milton, Ontario on April 15th, 2011. Jennifer's boyfriend, Daniel Wong, was arrested on April 26th, 2011 at the Boston Pizza Parlor. And Crawford was the final suspect arrested, entering custody on May 4th, 2011 in Brampton. The trial of Jennifer and her accomplices began on March 19th, 2014. So 10 years later. Oh, whoa, that's some four. slow justice. Four years later. Oh. <laughs> I can math, everyone. It was if, four if it years was later. 10 years later, it still wouldn't have happened yet. Right. <laughs> All pleaded not guilty to the charges of first degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. At the trial, York Regional Police evidence included exhaustive tracking of text messages, including over 100 messages sent between Jennifer and Daniel in the six hours prior to the killing. Further evidence centered on the atypical nature of the break-in, robbery, shootings, and irregularities in Jennifer's testimonies. Jennifer's obsession with Daniel, her lack of true emotion, and a confession regarding the attack played a role in court as well. Statements from Han, which differed greatly from Jennifer's version, also undermined her credibility. As he said, she was friendly with the hitman and handed over cash as if it was a payment rather than it being demanded. Which can you imagine watching your daughter do that? That is just be like, oh, here you go. Like, not even like resisting yeah and like watching these gunmen pull you down to the basement as your daughter is just you know just friendly with them yeah because she i'm sure she didn't try to put on airs because she assumed that they were going to be dead soon exactly and boy did things not go according to plan for her no Um, Jennifer was also unable to recreate the conditions of her 911 call when her hands were bound behind her. So that always came into question. How was she able to pull her cell phone from her pocket, call it, but then when the police arrived, she was still tied up and they had to cut the shoelaces. Oh, that is a very tricky yeah she's interest there she's a magician of another sort i guess so at the end of the trial jennifer daniel Movaganam, and crawford were all convicted on december 13th 2014 and each received a life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years in december of 2015 Cardi received an 18-year sentence after pleading guilty to conspiring to commit murder. He was eligible for parole after nine years. Jennifer's father and brother requested and was approved for a court order that banned Jennifer from ever contacting members of her surviving family again. 
she is also barred from ever contacting Daniel Wong again. Bik Ha Pan's funeral was held on November 15, 2010, and took place at the Ogden Chapel in Scarborough. Even though he was still living at the time, a funeral for Bik Ha's father was also held to satisfy a Chinese custom that asks for older members of the family to have their funerals first. Jennifer had to organize both funerals and had been asked to do so out of respect for her mother and also as a punishment inflicted upon her by her family, reminding her of how she betrayed them. Vic Ha was buried on November 19th. Han Pan could not attend his wife's funerals due to his injuries. Today, Jennifer is currently serving her sentence at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario. Daniel Wong, previously held in Lindsay, Ontario, is at Collins Bay Institution in Kingston, Ontario. Movaganam is at Atlantic Institution in Runos, New Brunswick. Crawford is at Kent Institution in Agassiz, British Columbia. And Cardi died in his cell at Millhaven Assessment Unit on April 26, 2018, which he was the one that would have been up for parole just after nine years. Wow. Did they say what the cause of death was? Was it like a weird Not that I could find um, on him. It just said died in his cell. Um, So maybe it was natural. Maybe it was inmate related. Who knows? Maybe he was a really bad roommate. Maybe he he left his dirty underwear out too much. (laughs) So the surviving four assailants will be up for parole in the year 2039. But it is widely believed that Jennifer, at least, will be denied. Right. It's kind of one of those things where it doesn't matter how good of a record you have in prison. Like, when your crime is so dark and so devious that it just like there's no way that you could be released back into society right and like she's shown that she's a master manipulator as well yeah could you imagine if she just went back out on the street and just started lying to people all over again like it would it would probably end badly all over again mm-hmm. so the love of jennifer pan was a deadly one leaving four people behind bars a mother murdered and multiple families destroyed. Jennifer will be over 50 before she's even eligible for parole, and despite still professing her love for Daniel, it is likely she will be alone and lonely for the rest of her life. Han and Felix Pan have moved on with their lives, but remain brokenhearted over the mother that they physically lost and the daughter and sister they emotionally lost. And that is the heartbreaking story of the Pan family. That is super, super fascinating. And yeah, that's, that, that'd be devastating. I mean, it kind of, when you think about last week, when I, when I brought up the fact that uh, women are, are way more likely to be killed by someone that they know, or, or like a, like a past lover or a, or a family member or something like that. This, I, I think you could consider this to fall into that statistic because the mother's murder was organized by her own daughter. It's, oh. And I, you know, part, I don't, adult Jennifer, I don't feel bad for at all. Um, she should sit in that jail cell for the rest of her life. But you know, child Jennifer, I do kind of feel bad for because she was under such intense pressure to exceed at everything. Yeah. And it was that it was that pressure that that led her to that web of lies because she failed calculus. And instead of coming clean about it and retaking one year of school, she felt her parents wouldn't accept that you know she 
she thought if I fail calculus, they're going to disown me. So I'm going to have to, you know, create this false persona of what's happening. Mm -hmm. So that Jennifer, I do have sympathy for. Right. But adds a complexity to the 24 year old Jennifer after making this web of lies and then working with violent offenders which these men all have a history of of criminal records you know working together to to murder your own parents just so you can selfishly not go to university and just work at a pizza shop with your boyfriend like no that's she deserves every single day that she spends behind bars yeah in the end it was she was motivated by her selfish wants rather than than trying to just work hard and make her life better i mean Mm -hmm. it's crazy because she had the potential to do anything that she wanted to do but she kind of ended up just choosing the easy way out and look where it got her right and you know in the short game lying was the easy easy way Mm-hmm. But then the more and more it went on, I'm sure it was 10 times more difficult than it would have been to just retake one year of high school. Yeah, just it snowballed so dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So moral of the story, just own up to your mistakes. Yeah. And you can, you can retake classes. Yeah. And if if you feel like your parents are pressuring you too much, just just remember it's only until you're out of the house, you know? Or even just talk to them about it because I'm, I'm sure if, if younger Jennifer had the wherewithal to confront her parents about how overbearing they were and, and just explain her feelings the way that she was feeling, that maybe they might've let up, I don't know. Yeah, it, it like, would it would be a tough sell, but it's like if if you just automatically accept it as an inevitability, then you know things are never going to get better. If you just right. accept it for the way it is. Yeah. Hmm. Oh. Well, sorry, I've I've darkened this beautiful sunny day. <laughs> But, you know, that's what we do at Dark and Devious. <laughs> is we we find you when you're at your highest and we just bring you down. <laughs> well, hopefully we fascinated you and yes. kept you captive with this story because that was a really, really compelling story. Uh, I could totally see the Lifetime movie coming together for that. Oh, my gosh. This is like movies like don't even make this stuff up yeah so it's brilliant. someone better get on this yeah right. <laughs> ripped from the headlines oh, uh really quick i want to thank my sources yes um for this week's episode i found a daughter's deadly deception the jennifer pan story by jeremy grimaldi the deadly love of jennifer pan author unknown the Toronto Times, and lastly, the episode of Case File presents episode 50, Jennifer Pan, which that is where I listened to the 911 call in its full. It's about five minutes long. Um, If you want to take a listen, uh, just YouTube Jennifer Pan 911 call. So you can hear that skilled actor and the moment when that when her father screams out, it just, it sends chills down your back. Ooh, maybe listen to that one with a drink in my hand. and <laughs> Get some liquid courage. <laughs> yeah, some liquid courage is what it might take. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thank you for coming into our podcast world today. Um, thank you for listening. Yes, this was a great episode. I really enjoyed it. And we hope that you all did too. So thanks again for listening and make sure you rate and review us wherever you listen to us. 
and like our social media accounts. That's right. That too. Um, And until until next time. time. Bye. Bye.